It's okay. I'm standing again. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Welcome to those who are uh, homebound this morning, joining us online. Uh, before we jump back into Hebrews, I want to take a moment to pray for uh, another church, as we often take the time to do at the front end of the service. Um, I'd like to pray for Covenant Church this morning. Uh, it's a, a church uh, plant of two years um, old. It's part of the Acts 29 church planting network that we're a part of. It's out in Baldwinsville, New York, which is near Syracuse. Um, uh, Pastor Bernie Elliott, somebody I've gotten to know over the past couple of years, and it's just a, a man who I've, I've grown to appreciate and respect from afar. Um, and sometimes when we pray for these other churches, part of the purpose, of course, we've expressed is just to get our, our, our eyes off of ourselves, realize we're, we have the privilege of being a part of something much bigger than ourselves, which is this uh, big C church, body of Christ worldwide. Um, but, but two, there, there's more of a connection than you think with some of these churches, especially that are outside of our immediate area. Um, I don't even think he's here this morning, uh, but some of you know Jason Brooks and the Brooks family are part of our congregation. So uh, Jason grew up going to youth group with Mike Mazie. Mike Mazie is the lead pastor of Renovation Church out in Syracuse and Renovation Planted Covenant Church. So uh, Jason and Mike go way back uh, to their high school days. Um, and that's not even the reason why we're connected with, uh, with them uh, in the first place um, uh, in terms of supporting Covenant Church, which we do financially and today in prayer. But there's all kinds of connections like that. Uh, the body of Christ is, uh, a, in some ways, a small, tight-knit community, and there's always connections like that, it seems. Uh, so I just want to take, uh, without uh, further ado and, and much explanation, just a few moments to pray for Covenant Church. I know you guys, most of you don't know Bernie, don't know Covenant. The power in bringing these, um, lifting these requests before God and me leading in that is that if you agree in prayer... I believe that that amplifies our intercession on behalf of that church this morning. So would you join me in praying for Covenant Church and Pastor Bernie out in Syracuse? Father, thank you once again that you have gotten us up and gotten us here by your grace this morning. Thank you that there are churches meeting in our area and in New York and in our country and in the world this morning, overlapping even when we are, to worship you and praise you. Lord, we pray for Covenant Church this morning. We pray for the people of Covenant Church that you would encourage their hearts. We pray for Pastor Bernie and his family that you would encourage and minister to them in their greatest needs right now. We pray that you would strengthen that church. We pray that as we just sang that amazing hymn, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and so much of it was about how there is an earthly enemy uh, who seeks to, uh, to lead astray, to steal, to kill, destroy, um, but you you are so much greater than he. We pray against the enemy in whatever ways he would seek to remove the light from Covenant Church. But instead, Father, we pray that you would actually bring a greater harvest of righteousness and growth and sanctification and people coming to Jesus through whatever work the enemy is trying to do there now. So bless them, Lord. May they experience your presence profoundly this morning, even as I pray that we would too. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I alluded to a moment ago, we're going to shift gears back into our series in the book of Hebrews, um, which we took a three-week break from to spend some time taking a look at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that series or one of those three messages, it's worth listening to, not because I preached it. It's worth listening to because it gives you some insight into who we as Christians believe the Holy Spirit to be 
and in particular here at Terra Nova, how we understand him to work and, um, and what it looks like uh, to be engaging with the Holy Spirit and the work of mission he's called us to. So it'd be well worth your time to go back and listen to uh, one or any of those messages you may have missed. Today we'll be in Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20. So you can feel free to turn there now and kind of put your finger on that page. But it's worth, because it's been a while, uh, uh, just a, a brief recap of where we were so that you can kind of understand why we're picking up where we are today. Uh, so we last left off in Hebrews 6, verse 12, but as I'll mention in a moment, there, there was kind of a, an interruption, an interlude that the, the author took uh, at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. So before that, he had just introduced that Jesus, as, as has been the theme over and over again, he's better. Jesus is better, right? Jesus is the better high priest, is what we'd taken a look at at the end of chapter 5. That he's better because... As human, which Jesus was fully human and fully God, he was tempted in every way as you and I uh, are. And so he could empathize with us in our own struggle against temptation. And yet the difference between him and us, the difference between Jesus and the high priests of Israel, was that he never sinned. So he was the better high priest. And in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, the author says this, he says, And being made perfect, referring to Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so this is the note that the author left off on, and then he rudely interrupts, interrupts himself in order to make a point. He he thinks, what I'm about to say to you is really important. I need you to grasp this idea of Jesus as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But you can't hear it right now. You're too dull of hearing. And I have to address this pilgrim issue in your journey before I can move on to talk about this key theological issue that you need to grasp. And so he says they're dull of hearing or sluggish in hearing. He's referring to their immaturity as it has to do with their hunger or lack thereof for God's word. So he calls them to maturity. He calls them to become uh, students of God's word, not for the sake of being intellectuals, but for the sake of knowing their God in a deeper, more robust way. And he includes with this some sober warnings about remaining immature and the consequences that that would have. And as I shared very open-handedly, my understanding of this complex passage in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, is that these were truly believers in view that he was addressing, and yet it was loss of rewards in heaven eternally, uh, the risk of being in a state of perpetual immaturity if they continued to presume upon God's grace and not grow that was in view there. Nonetheless, he shifts gears in verse 9 through 12 to talk about how his belief that as true Christians, whom he believed they were, they are going to live lives that are becoming of the things that belong to salvation. He had hope that they would, in fact, mature. And he calls them to two things. He calls them to an earnestness in their pursuit of the assurance of their hope, which was already theirs in Christ, but they seem to have a lack thereof. And he calls them to be imitators of those who already in the past, through faith and patience, have inherited the promises of God. And that is a setup for where he transitions to today, where he takes a look at a prime example of one who through faith and patience has inherited the promises, and that is Abraham, the great patriarch. Um, and so that's where we will pick up. 
and I'll actually have uh, a start in verse 11, just so we have the context of those previous couple of verses in view. But our passage primarily today will be uh, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. You can find that on pages, uh, or page 1190 of the blue hardback ESV Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along there. You can find that on the screen behind me as well, I believe. And I would ask, uh, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law and your word this morning. We pray you would do so by the power of your Holy Spirit, who you've given us as a gift who lives within us. And we we pray this for the sake of um, our growth in you, our love for you, our understanding of your love for us, our greater joy, and ultimately your glory, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. You may have a seat. The main idea for this morning is really more of uh, a title, and it draws straight from the text itself, and that is this. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our hope. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our hope, and that that hope is sure and steadfast because three things, and this will be our outline for today, it is anchored in God's promises, It is anchored in God's character, and it is anchored in God's Son. So the first anchor for our hope is in God's promises. But first, before we even talk about why we can have a security in God's promises, we have to talk about what they are, particularly as they're in view in our passage this morning. Uh, Scholars, commentators, average everyday Christians like you and I will spend time counting up the promises in the Bible and there's been estimates anywhere between three and 7,000 promises in the Bible. Some would say upwards of 30,000. It depends on who's counting and how many inferences from different passages of scriptures they'll draw as promises. The point is, there are a lot of promises in the Bible that God makes to his people. In our passage today, though, it's the foundational promises of the gospel that are in view. And if you've been at Terra Nova long enough, then you've heard us use the language 
with regards to the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith, of life and place and meaning. These are the things that before the fall, before sin entered in the world, before mankind rebelled against God, God gave as good gifts for his creation. It was his original purpose and design. And it's the things since the fall through Christ that God has been redeeming and restoring for creation, life and place and meaning. What do we mean by that in brief? Uh, first of all, you read Genesis 1 and 2. You see these terms used there. You see them throughout the scriptures. Acts chapter 17, Paul's on Mars Hill preaching to the Gentiles using language very similar. The, this isn't something we're making up. This is something we see right in the scriptures. So in Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates Adam and Eve, first of all, he breathes the breath of life into Adam, not only giving him physical life and vitality, but also giving him spiritual life, which is what enables him to relate to God, have a relationship with him. He gives them a place to dwell. He gives them the garden. It was not just a physical place, though it felt like home in that regard. It was also a place because there was community there that was uninterrupted by sin. Adam and Eve had perfect unity and harmony with one another, and we're told that the Lord walked with them while they were in the garden. So they had place, belonging, place they could call home. Should I do something else, or I don't know if that's me. All right, Madison will grab that, and if it keeps going, I'll switch over to that mic. He also gave us purpose, life, place, and meaning, or purpose. When he created Adam and Eve, he, first of all, made them, I don't know if we often think of ourselves this way, as vice regents over God's creation, as uh, basically mini-gods, if you will. We were created in his image to steward his creation as God would and to bring dominion over all that he had made and to cultivate the garden, bring order out of what God had made. And on top of that, he also uh, instructed and commissioned Adam and, and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, to multiply the image bearers, literally give birth to children and multiply God's image in the world. Life and place and meaning. So where do we see that? Thanks, Madison. Should I turn off this way? So where then do we see that in our passage here today in Hebrews chapter 6? Well, God makes this promise to Abraham in chapter 6 verse 14. Surely I will bless you and multiply you is what God said to Abraham. Where does that come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 22. The context in that passage is that Abraham has already had the son of, of promise, Isaac, that if you know the story, was impossible for man. Abraham and Sarah were old, they were barren. So God gives Abraham the son Isaac, and then right after that he calls him to sacrifice him. And so Abraham, not to mention everything that must have humanly been going through his head, nonetheless goes up onto this mountain and is all but ready to sacrifice his son. In his heart he had followed through, not because he was evil, but because he trusted God could even bring his son back from the dead if he needed to in order to fulfill this promise. And before he brings down that knife, God stays his hand and he says, stop. And he provides a ram in Isaac's place as the necessary sacrifice. And so God spares Abraham from having to kill his own son. And it's at this moment then that God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, 16 to 18, the promise that we see here in Hebrews 6. He says this to him. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates, the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. See, the Bible is really just this story ever since the fall of God restoring life and place and meaning from cover to cover. And we see two of those three gospel promises right there in that interaction between God and Abraham, place and meaning. Now, we don't hear that language, but when God says he's going to bless Abraham, how is it that he blesses him? He gives him a land, a promised land to have belonging, to dwell with this numerous people that would come through Abraham where God would be with them. It's place. It's another version of the garden all over again. And then he says, and I will multiply you. And this is meaning and purpose. Not only would Abraham's descendants be blessed by God, but they would be blessed to be a blessing because through his descendants would come one who would bless all the nations of the earth, ultimately Jesus, right? That's the mission of God. And God's people, Israel, were a part of that. That's their meaning. That's their purpose. So here it is again. So that was a promise to Abraham, but what about for us? Is that a promise for you and I here today as well? And the short answer is yes, that is a promise for us as well. In verse 17 of our passage, we we read this. So, the author says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, that's key, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So who are the heirs of the promise? If we had time, we would read together Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 3, where he convincingly makes the argument that if you are trusting in Jesus, then you are in fact the heirs of of the promise. And in verse 29 of chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul says, So if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the blessings of place and meaning that God promised to Abraham, the author of Hebrews is saying, are blessings that are for you and I here today. How? How do we as the, the church, as God's people, experience these things redeemed today? How do we experience place? Because we don't, like Israel or like Adam and Eve, necessarily have a designated garden, a designated homeland. We don't have a physical land, but God has given us instead something called the church. All right, which is far from perfect, but it's a gift of community. It's a gift of belonging. At its best, the church is a place where people don't know shame amongst each other, but acceptance, even as God has accepted us in Christ. And on top of that, God dwells with the church. The Bible says that collectively and individually, we are a temple for the Holy Spirit. God dwells within us. This is place restored all over again. It's what Adam and Eve had in the garden and what God has given us, the church, today as a restoration of place. Meaning, how do we find meaning today as the church? How is the promise to Abraham fulfilled even in and through us? Well, ultimately, all the nations would be blessed through Jesus, who would come through Abraham's line. But the commission to multiply continues. Jesus said to Matthew 28, or yes, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Go, therefore, as he speaks to his disciples, and make 
other disciples, more disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, meaning today is not just physical offspring. And in fact, uh, when we have children today, they are born into a broken world. They are born into the world as sinners themselves. They are broken image bearers. They are not the perfect image bearers that God intended when he said, be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve to begin with. So certainly that is a part of meaning today for us as Christians. But it goes beyond this because we are invited into the greatest privilege and purpose, which is introducing others who don't know Jesus to Jesus, leading them to the one who loves them, who died for them, and created them to live for and reflect God's image in the world. God has given us mission today to go out and multiply through making disciples. So the promise of multiplication for Abraham's offspring is a promise of multiplying you and and me, a promise to give us meaning through the Great Commission. You and I are a part of God's story if you are a Christian here today, God's mission of reconciling the world to himself. So he's given us place. He's given us meaning. Where does life show up in this passage? Um, And it actually doesn't come necessarily explicitly in the promise to Abraham, but later on in the author of Hebrews' argument when he talks about how God has given us a refuge, a place of refuge. That is life. He says in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge. The imagery here that is given is of uh, the in the Old Testament, these cities of refuge. So if you accidentally killed somebody, uh, there were these uh, cities of refuge set up that you could flee to and find safe harbor in so that the family members of the one you accidentally killed couldn't execute their vengeance on you and come and kill you. Okay, These were places that existed in the Old Testament. For us, our refuge is not coming from accidental crimes but from sin that we've committed against Almighty God. And God has provided the refuge that we need in His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's not just an escape from death but with that refuge also comes the gift of eternal life, the restoration of life, reconciling us to God so that we can be in right relationship with Him once again. So life and place and meaning these are the promises God has made to us. Rather than having to continue to live with death and with division and the aimless existence as sinners in this broken world, God has given us instead life and place and meaning through Jesus Christ, his son. These are the promises that are in view here when the author of Hebrews is addressing this church. But the question isn't just what are the promises, it's why do they function for us as Christians as an anchor for our souls and for our hope. And the reason is because the promises are given by God with an oath that accompanies them. Now, you may think, understandably, why would God need to do that? I mean, he's God after all. We can trust his word, can't we? I don't know if you're thinking that, that everybody actually thinks that way. Some people question whether God is trustworthy. Um, Probably all of us do. If you ever doubt uh, in your walk with the Lord, then then you're questioning whether he's trustworthy. So God didn't need to give these promises with an oath to Abraham and to us, but he did. He swore an oath for our sake. And he uses the language of a courtroom, um, which would have been deeply significant for those in the Greco-Roman world, even if less so for us, but even we can get this. So the setting is that of a courtroom. And someone who takes the stand 
will give an oath that they are telling the truth before they give their testimony, right? And if you don't, if you lie under oath, it's perjury, and there are actually some pretty serious consequences. At the very least, a hefty fine and potentially up to five years in prison. And it could be worse than that, depending on the, the, the case and, and what's actually being, um, what's in view. And so uh, in the oath, they would be appealing to a superior. They would be appealing to somebody superior to them that would lend credibility to them. And in the ancient Greco-Roman world, what you would do is you would, appear to, you would appeal to a social superior who could validate your character. And you have to understand, too, that in the Greco-Roman world, it was a shame-honor culture. We don't really quite have that in the same way here in the West. And so you would build up your honor by building up your associations with those who were socially superior to you in society. On that social ladder, they were higher than you, so that when you needed to... to you could call upon that person to vouch for your character, whether it be in court or in some other situation. So God makes an oath that he will keep his promises. But the interesting thing is, who else is God going to swear by that is greater than him? In a court of law, we may put our hand on the Bible because God is far superior than us, or other people of a different faith may put their hand on their, the book of their faith something higher than them. There is nothing higher than God. There is no one greater than God. And so this is why then, when God makes an oath, he swears by himself. By myself I have sworn, he says in Genesis 22. But that still begs the question, how can we trust God's oath? And so that's our next point. Our hope is a sure and steadfast anchor, not just because we can have confidence in the promises, because God's made an oath, but we can have confidence in the character of the one making those promises as well. In verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews 6, the author says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So there is an interpretive challenge here. Um, whether this is the first time you've ever heard this passage or you've read it a dozen times before, the question that should come up is, what are the two things um, that are in view here? Uh, and there are multiple explanations that have been given. Um, some would say it's the promise and the oath are the two things that we've already talked about um, that are unchangeable. Others would say that the author actually has in view here Psalm 110.4, which he's referred to back in chapter 5, verse 6. He actually quoted it there, which says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So there's that language of oath again. You, this is a messianic prophecy of, of the future of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So some would say that the two things aren't even mentioned here in this passage explicitly that the author is referring back to Psalm 110.4. So the two unchangeable things would be, number one, Jesus is a high priest forever. And number two, he's in the order of Melchizedek, which Melchizedek was unique as a king, not only because he had no beginning or no end, so he would exist forever. Uh, excuse me, he was unique as a priest because he would exist forever, but he was also a king. There had never been in Israel before both a king and a priest, nonetheless one that lived forever. Regardless of what two things it is, all of that may be in view. I want to draw out two other things about God's character here that are a basis for why we can trust God's promises and the oath that he has made. And the first one is that the scriptures tell us that God is unchanging. 
Verse 17, and when he desired to show us the unchangeable character of his purpose. If there's one thing that we can count on in this world, it's change. And often not of the good kind. And often we experience that and most painfully when it's change in the lives of those who are around us. Sometimes it's because of suffering that's thrust upon them by virtue of living in a fallen and broken world. Sometimes it's for reasons we don't understand and by sin in their own lives. So people's personalities change, people's priorities change. I've known many people throughout my life who I thought were one person. And years later, I'll meet them or on social media, if there's distance between us, I won't even recognize them anymore. They seem like a completely different person. They've changed so much. And it can be unsettling. But God will never change. Malachi 3.6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The author of Hebrews says later in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And since Jesus is God and shares that character with God, God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's unchanging, but he's also always truthful. In verse 18, it says, it is impossible for God to lie. For how many of you in this room is a deep wound that you carry the result of a lie on the part of someone else, of some duplicity, of some deception that has been lived out in your community context? Maybe it's a parent who told us that they would always be there for us, but abandoned us at some point. Maybe it's a spouse who made a promise to us on our wedding day who's no longer in the picture of our lives. Maybe to a lesser degree, it's a friend who told us that we were their best friend until some better choices came along, and then we were, we were moved to the margins of their priorities. Maybe it's politicians who've made bold promises that they've not followed through on or maybe even done the opposite of. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament was not surprised by any of this. He said in Jeremiah 17, 9, The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's really hard to trust people in this world once you've been burned in a significant way. Honestly, it can be hard to trust people in this world once you become intimately acquainted with what's in your own heart. But our hope is that we have a God who does not lie. A God who cannot lie. And that because of his Holy Spirit working within us, we too can become people of integrity like God as we follow after Jesus. One of the scriptures that says it most clearly about this character attribute of God's is Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? This is our God. He's unchanging. He's always truthful. He does not lie. So his oath to keep his promises to us is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls in an otherwise unstable and untrustworthy world. That's good news because we're a part of that instability and untrustworthiness. But our God remains faithful. Thirdly, our hope is secure because it is anchored in God's Son. In verses 19 to 20 today, the author says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
ultimately the anchor in view here is Jesus himself, who he is and what he has accomplished for us. And I want to talk about three things, the location of this anchor, the duration of the anchor's hold, and the need for holding fast to this anchor. So first, the location of our anchor. In verse 19, again, it says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So it's language that's meant to draw our attention to the earthly, uh, to begin with anyway, to the earthly holy of holies in the temple as it existed up until 70 AD in Jerusalem. And this was the place that only the high priest had access And even then, only one time of year on the Day of Atonement, when he was making sacrifices for the sins of Israel. Now, if you know the story of Jesus in the Gospels, when he was crucified on the cross, some crazy things happened. The sky darkened for hours, there were earthquakes. And in the temple, in this inner sanctum, where this curtain had previously separated all but the high priest and even him only one time a year from the rest of the world, where God's presence dwelt most intimately and acutely, the temple was ripped and torn from top to bottom, signifying that through faith in Jesus, who just died for the world, we now would have access to this inner holy of holies. Except that in our passage today, the inner place behind the curtain is not an earthly temple. It's the throne room of God in heaven that's in view here. Where, in verse 20 we're told, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The anchor of our hope, then, is in heaven because Jesus is our hope and he is in heaven, in God's presence, in the throne room. Now, I want to just make a note here. Normally, when we think about an anchor, we think about something that goes down. I mean, this would be the word that was used in the Greco-Roman culture for anchoring a ship in a harbor so that it wouldn't go anywhere. Here, we have a picture of it going up instead into heaven. And that's not insignificant. Um, I'm not a rock climber. You guys have gotten me into skiing and mountain biking. Probably rock climbing is not going to happen for me. But I've been around enough rock climbers to know that there's such a thing called top roping. And this is where you're, rather than having anchors on the way up that you clip into, you have an anchor at the final destination that you're clipped into that's holding you secure from the top. The thing about top roping, I mean, this is just logical. I'm assuming this is how it works. Somebody had to climb up there to begin with to put that anchor in the ground that's holding you now securely. That person is Jesus when it comes to our souls. And you are the beneficiary, you and me. You are harnessed in. You are protected. That anchor is not going anywhere. And through faith in Christ, you are in a harness with a rope that leads into the throne room of God and your anchor remains there by faith in the one who's holding the other end, Jesus himself. Secondly, the duration of that anchor's hold is forever. In verse 20, we're told, when Jesus had gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the anchor that is in heaven with Jesus that he's brought there as a forerunner will last forever. Why? Because Jesus will last forever. This is why he's a better high priest. All other high priests in Israel who had gone before him had died. Jesus had died, but he rose again from the dead, proving that he had power over death and life. And if he has power over death and life, then what could ever dislodge him from heaven? That anchor is holding there forever. 
So the location of that anchor is the throne room of heaven. The duration of that anchor's hold is forever. Thirdly, so hold fast to that anchor. This is your and my part. God has revealed all of this to us that we've talked about so far, about his promises, his oath, his character, his son, so that, as it says in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Our refuge is in Jesus. There is safety in our being found in Christ. He is our city of refuge, but we're also told that we have to hold fast to this hope. Now, the author combines here this idea of refuge, he kind of switches metaphors a little bit, with the idea of the horns of the altar, which was an image from the temple uh, in in the Old Testament. So here's how this would work. Uh, When a fugitive in Israel was desperate for refuge because they had done something wrong, they would run to the temple, they would go to the altar of burnt offering, and on the four corners of this altar were these horns. They would latch onto two of them with their hands, and they would take hold like a safe zone. Any of us who were kids or have had kids played tag and conveniently the closest tree became the safety tree, right? That if you touched it, you couldn't tag. I mean, in a much more profound, significant way, that's what this was. It was a safe zone, grabbing onto the horns of the altar. This was the case, by the way, as an example of Adonijah. Adonijah was one of King David's sons. He tried to ascend to the throne, anoint himself. But while David was toward the end of his life, he knew that God's anointing was on Solomon. So he anointed Solomon, and Adonijah's like, oh, I'm in big trouble now. Because all the important people in Israel who saw what God was doing sided with King David and Solomon. So Adonijah then runs to the temple. He takes hold of the horns, and he seeks Solomon's mercy, which was granted. The other thing to know about this altar, uh, the altar of burnt offering, is that it was the altar that the high priest made the offering on on the Day of Atonement one time a year, the sacrifice that would be for all the sins of Israel. So here's the idea then. When we take hold of the horns of the altar, figuratively speaking, we are saying that Jesus is our only hope of refuge from our sins and from the justice of God. We are the fugitives. We are Adonijah. We are the ones who've been in rebellion against the true king. And yet, God the king sacrificed his own son to atone for our sins. But we have to hold fast to this hope, like an Israelite would hold fast to the horns of the altar. So there, in other words, is a need for us to persevere in following Jesus, in trusting Jesus. We've been given every reason to do so. And have done nothing to earn God's gracious promises, which have been given freely to us through faith. God's promises will not change, and those of us who are in Christ here today are as secure in that standing as Jesus is in the throne room of God presently, holding the anchor of our souls. But perseverance and trust in Christ is the evidence of true salvation. The more we cling to Christ, and this is where the author starts to bring it all together from earlier in chapter 6, the more that we cling to Christ, the greater of that assurance of hope that is already yours becomes. That indeed we are his, and that he will preserve us until the end. But you have to hold fast to that hope. There is a tension here in scripture that I hope you're catching. And we have every reason to do so. God has given us every reason to have confidence 
that we can trust him and that we are his through faith in Christ because of his promises, because of his character and the oath that he's taken about these promises, and because he's what he's revealed to us in his son, who's already there in heaven, holding the other end of our anchor. As we close here, I want to just spend a moment. We've been talking so much about how our confidence, the, the reason for the source of um, confidence we can have in that anchor is rooted in God, rightfully so. It's not rooted in anything about you and I that's so special. It's all about God. And yet in verse 15, we're told that Abraham, having waited, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. We do have a part to play here, and I just want to talk about faith and patience for a moment. Because in the Bible, the pattern that you see over and over again is that when God makes a promise to us, to his people, it oftentimes happens in a set of circumstances or situation that feels like the opposite of the promise. A people are enslaved, and they're still experiencing it, yet God has promised that he will deliver them. Abraham feels insignificant, no doubt, at the beginning of his journey, but God promises he's going to make a great nation out of him. Abraham and Sarah are infertile, but God has promised that he will give them offspring. David is running from his life, from King Saul who wants to kill him, yet God has promised David's the anointed one and will be king one day. Someone in the scriptures or today, you and I, feel alone. God has promised that he will be with us. Someone feels inadequate. God has promised that he will provide. Again and again, you see this pattern. The promise comes in the midst of the circumstance that feels like the opposite of the promise. And oftentimes, our experiences, there is a delay between the promise given and the fulfillment of that promise. It's not instantaneous. And sometimes, in fact, it takes a day longer than a lifetime for us to experience the fullness of God's promises come to fruition. The point is this. The faith part actually comes in the waiting. But I want to say, too, that it's not faith in the modern sense, which many of us have been led to believe, is a jump off of a cliff into a blind jump off a cliff into a dark abyss where we can't see anything. That's a very modern concept of faith. The biblical concept of faith is instead a step into the light, a step into what God has revealed about himself, a step into what God has revealed already is true about the world. And so we stand on those things as we wait for the fulfillment of the promises and what is unseen. Anyone here today, I don't want to say some of you, all of us here today are probably waiting on the fulfillment of some promise from God that we yearn and long for. Some of you may feel alone. You know the truth that God will never leave you or forsake you, and yet that just doesn't measure with your experience right now. Some of you desire something that is good, but it feels perpetually out of your reach. Some of you are chronically sick or in pain, and you long for healing. Some of you are forgiven and you know it, but you're racked with shame. And you long for peace, and you long for uh, acceptance, but it just is so elusive for you. All of us walk in the now and the not yet. All of us know that there are promises God has made that we're not fully experiencing at this moment. And I just want you to see this. Abraham, it says, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. In what sense did Abraham obtain the promise? What did that look like for him? Well, some of what that meant was that he obtained the promise through receiving his son as if back from the dead. 
when he was all but dead, right? God had promised to give Abraham and Sarah an offspring, though he was an old man, and he gave him Isaac. And just when it seemed like Isaac was about to be taken away, the one through whom God would build this great nation through Abraham, he restored him. He gave him back to Abraham. Abraham found himself again and again in circumstances that felt like the opposite of the promise. But Abraham proceeded in faith, and he obtained the promise, in part. Because don't we also know, if you're honest and thinking about what God promised to Abraham, that there's so much of it that he did not see. So much of the promises that were made to him, he didn't end up having the eyes to see. He never saw He never lived to the point of seeing the great nation as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens, did he? So if we don't obtain the promises in full, then how do we wait patiently? Two things. We look back and we look forward. Here's what I mean by that. We look back in your life and in mine. Can you look back and can you identify the places where God has been faithful to you, where he has fulfilled promises in your life? where God has provided for you, where God has forgiven you where we've not deserved it, where God has sustained you. So we need to do that. We need to look back because God has fulfilled his promises, even if in part to us. And we need to stand on those things God's already revealed. But we also need to look forward. And when we get to Hebrews 11, verses uh, 13 to 16, it's the famous Hall of Faith passage. Abraham is talked about again here, along with some of the other patriarchs in Israel, some of his descendants. And it talks about how they did these great acts of faith. And we know Abraham saw, he obtained the promise to some degree, but they didn't see it all. And here's what it says about them. And here's where their faith was rooted that allowed them to persevere in patience while they were waiting. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. These, Abraham and others, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, then they would have had the opportunity to return there. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We not only look back then, but we look forward to the day when all of God's promises will be fulfilled once and for all because we have a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul and that is secure in heaven. And it is rooted in the promises of God. It is rooted in the character of that one who made those promises. And it's rooted in the son who died for you and me and rose again and is now on the other end of that anchor, holding it secure in heaven for us until we meet him there. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this good news, this undeserved news. We thank you for your mercy. Some of us here today, including myself, just pray that you would continue to be the merciful God we know you to be. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Strengthen us to continue to persevere in following you. And thank you that you've given us every reason to do so through your promises, your unchanging character, and your Son, whose name we pray. Amen.